Well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving Sunday. We are glad that you're here with us at the bridge. You know, recently my uh, son Zachary, he did a report for his school for something called Gallery of Greatness. And in this program, he had to do research on a famous American figure in history. And he not only did research on this character, but ended up having to tell the story and even dressing up like this character. And so my son chose Muhammad Ali, the late great boxer. In the story, he told of Muhammad Ali's humble beginnings, his rise to fame, his famous matches with people like Joe Frazier, George Foreman, and unfortunately, his bout with Parkinson's disease, which led to his death in 2016. If you know anything about Ali, he was quite a spokesman and even a poet. He's best known for two statements. The first statement was one that he gave to his opponent, George Foreman, who he fought. Here's what he said in the statement. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. George thinks he will, but I know he won't. His other well-known statement was simply these three words, I'm the greatest. I'm sure you've heard that before. And since that time, not only Ali, but many others, probably many athletes, have said something similar. I'm the greatest. If not in those terms, similarly, very much so. But I'd like to pose a question to you this morning regarding that statement. And the question is this, what is greatness according to the Bible? What is greatness according to the Bible? Well, this morning we're going to see that Jesus actually answers that question in our passage, which is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And I believe you'll be surprised to see that it has nothing to do with status, notoriety, or position, not even power, but rather it has everything to do with a posture and an attitude that gears us towards service. So this morning's message is entitled, The Sacrificial Service of the Son of Man. Would you bow with me as we pray one more time and ask the Lord to guide our time together? Father, we uh, thank you so much that we can be here today. We are thankful not just because of the season, but we are thankful because in every season, Christ is with us. And so we celebrate the gospel, the good news that saved sinners like us. And we thank you that you have been gracious to us in every way. So we ask that today as we explore this question of what is greatness according to the Bible, that we would look to the source of greatness, Jesus the Son. Give us clarity of heart and mind and openness and willingness to embrace these truths for our own lives. Help me now as I teach that I'd be careful and clear, and we want to commit our time to you now, and thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our passage is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 to 45. Let me read the passage to you. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed 
And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for a number of months, and as we come to this passage this morning, this is the central focus of the entire theme of the Gospel of Mark, which positions Jesus as the servant of the Lord. We're going to look at our outline now. There's three points to it. Number one, it's the prediction of suffering, verses 32 to 34. Secondly, the preparation for greatness, verses 35 to 42. And finally, the portrait of servanthood, verses 43 to 45. Let's begin with our first point, the prediction of suffering, verses 32 to 34. When we look at verse 32, there's something very strange, culturally speaking, that shows up that causes the disciples to take a second look, and it says in the text, to even be amazed. Look at verse 32, what it says. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Stop right there. This section now in verses 32 to 34 is the third what's called passion statement. And the passion statements within the Gospel of Mark are all statements that will predict the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in between the death and the resurrection, of course, embroiled within that is the whole suffering issue. That's why it's called the Passion Statement. And what is striking about this particular verse is verse 32, where it says Jesus was walking ahead of them. Not a big deal, right? He's the leader of this group. But if you look at the disciples' response, it says that they were amazed. And perhaps amazed is a kind of a weaker word. Maybe the word would be that they were startled. 
And the reason why was, culturally speaking, in the first century, a rabbi who was a teacher, Jesus was a rabbi, typically would not forge ahead and walk ahead. A rabbi would typically either stay to the back or be to the side, especially with his pupils, with his disciples that he would teach. And so there's something noticeably different in this particular passage and this passion treatment because now Jesus is walking ahead of them. One commentator wrote this, that perhaps Jesus now in anticipation of his death and resurrection has now showed a new intensity by forging ahead of them. An intensity of his mission, the mission of the cross, the mission to die, and the mission to redeem us from our sins. That leads us to our second point, the preparation for greatness. It's interesting that as Jesus is moving ahead and he's getting ready to die, the conversation shifts back to something very self-focused. Look at verse 35 with me of chapter 10. Two of the followers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which can also be translated the sons of thunder, which means they probably made loud noises at least. They came up to Jesus and look at the question that they asked him. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now stop here for a moment. Jesus had just told them, I'm going to die. I, I, I'm going to suffer. I, I'm going to be crucified. He's predicting the suffering and the pain. And all of a sudden, James and John said, by the way, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Could you do that for us, please? I don't know if you've been with small children. Sometimes that's their situation. You might be in a car. You might be traveling somewhere, having something important to do. And then the kids will say, can we get ice cream? Which is not a bad question. I often ask that question myself. But it has nothing to do with the mission. Obviously, Jesus is forging ahead and he's focused on something he's got to do. And now the disciples were not on board with that mission. They were looking at their own advancement, their own focus, perhaps their own means towards greatness. Well, Jesus plays along. So in verse 36, he said to them, so what do you want me to do for you? And now look at the gall, look at the, the immense statement they say in verse 37. They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now stop here. Is that such a bad request? They want to be with Jesus. Well, not exactly. There's something culturally embroiled again with this request. You see, the government of the first century in this time was a Roman government that was a rather oppressive uh, administration. And Jesus now coming on the scene is viewed as a person who is an insurrectionist, someone who would rise up and cause people to follow and potentially even overthrow the government. And so Jesus was not seen as a spiritual figure by the masses. He was seen as a political figure who could overthrow the government. That was probably the understanding of the disciples as well. And of course, it doesn't help that there's all these predictions in the Old Testament of a kingdom that will be set up by a new king. 
And let me just say, that's going to happen, but not yet. Because all of that is future in terms of what's called the second coming of Christ, not the first coming of which we're in in our text. But James and John, not being able to differentiate the two, think that Jesus is going to somehow snap his fingers and say, okay, be done, Romans. I'm in charge. And they wanted a piece of that pie. And so they're asking now to be able to sit. And the right hand is the place of honor. The left hand is the second highest position. And so they wanted to have greatness within a political structure of the first century. Well, look at how Jesus responds now in verse 38. He doesn't just say, no, no, no. He just says, he doesn't say, no, you can't. He doesn't put them down. Look what he says in verse 38. He said to them, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now stop here for a second. What? How does he shift all of a sudden to drinking a cup and baptizing and so forth? He is now speaking in slang. He's using euphemisms of the first century. When a person drank, believe it or not, they didn't all have individual cups. Much like if you've been in a communion service, they'll have one cup that they'll share and drink from. It was this idea that the cup signified a sharing of life together as you are drinking. Baptism was yet another reiteration or affirmation of something that's shared. When a person is baptized in a church, they're saying, I'm sharing union with Christ, and I'm sharing communion with my fellow saints here in the church. So the cup and baptism were both metaphors to say, are you ready to share with me with what I'm going to go through? And again, if you remember what Jesus has just said, the sharing is going to be in suffering. He's going to say, are you ready to go through what I'm going to go through? And they were very confident, right? At the end of verse, uh, well, beginning of verse 39, they said, we are able. And Jesus now responds back to them. So look at verse 39 with me. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. I want you to notice the tense of the verbs will drink and will be baptized. They're all future tense. And what's significant about this is Jesus doesn't just shut them down and say, no way, there's never going to be a chance for you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't discourage them. He just says, your time is coming, but not yet. I have the opportunity and privilege to teach seminary students at the school that I'm at. Many of them aspire to be pastors. And they have given me both permission and opportunity to speak into their lives. And a lot of them want to be the next Rick Warren or Chuck Swindoll or Reverend Kang. They're Korean, of course. And I tell them, those are great aspirations. But I follow what Jesus says. Not yet. Stay on the straight and narrow. Be faithful. And one day maybe you will get to that. 
And I think the first observation I'd like to make is this. There's no quick route to greatness, not true greatness. The quick routes are typically called fads or trends. True greatness is sustained. And I think that's one of the lessons that Jesus was trying to teach to them. Notice, if you would now, that Jesus had just told them that he's going to die, he's going to suffer, and it just went over their heads. And they, instead, they're like, give us what we want. And then, of course, what did they want? They wanted greatness. They wanted to sit at the right and left hands of Jesus and stand together as a political figure to overthrow this new government that would emerge over the Roman government. They wanted positions of power. And it's interesting because if you look at verse 10, I'm sorry, not verse 10, but the next statement about the 10 that comes down in verse 41, it says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to become indignant with James and John. Meaning they were angry. They were ticked off. And you might want to wonder, well, what are they ticked off about? I want to suggest to you because James and John beat them to the punch, that they too aspired to some sort of political greatness and aspiration. And James and John, sons of thunder, just asked first. It's interesting to see, again, not only the request, but more so the response. And if you go back to the text now, look at verse 40. Here's what Jesus says. He says, It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And in so doing, he's saying again that the part of the preparation that's going to be necessary for greatness is going to be for them to take the road of suffering together with Jesus. Did you get that? It's the road of suffering that can lead to greater greatness. I think we can see that all throughout Scripture, that Jesus suffered, he died, he rose again, and now he's in glory. It's always in that order. It's always in that chronology. And in so doing, Jesus is now giving a teaching lesson to James and John who aspire to this. He gives them hope by saying, one day you will have this, but not now. And the reason why is they have not traveled through this road yet of hardship and suffering, which they needed to travel on in order to get to the end destination of greatness. The road is not only one of suffering, but it is one that will cause humility. And may I say this to you, the Bible seems to suggest strongly that humility is the first step towards greatness. I was doing a study on this, and interestingly enough, one of the talks that I went to at a conference this week dealt with this very concept. You know, the idea of humility as a virtue in the first century was not a very highly praised one. It was a very arrogant and proud culture and society. And so rather than the statement of humility, the actual more correct interpretation or translation of the word is humiliation. Humiliation a stronger, more intense degree of perhaps humility. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been humiliated? It's not a good feeling, is it? Perhaps somewhere, somehow you've been humiliated. 
But let me make this statement to you. Although it's not a good feeling, it is necessary and in the training for preparation of real greatness. Humiliation can be used by God to teach you something that you need to learn. And James and John are clear examples of this, and so are we. I'd like to take a moment to tell you two stories from my past. One you've heard before, the other one probably you've not heard, of one of the most humiliating experiences I've ever had in my entire life. It happened way back in 1996 as I was finishing my second master's degree in Greek New Testament at Talbot Seminary. In this degree, you write a thesis, which I had finished, and then after the thesis, you are supposed to take a comprehensive exam that will hopefully demonstrate that you have mastered the material. I unfortunately am and continue to be an ongoing procrastinator, so I remember that I waited all the way till the end of the semester with two weeks left to take my comprehensives right before graduation. You see, I was slated to graduate, and not only would I graduate, but also had I graduated, then I would then be promised an adjunct teaching position at the undergrad level at Bio University. I went into the exam fairly confident, but unfortunately not studied. And a day later, I received a shattering phone call from my supervisor. He said, Ben, can you come into the office, please? Now, this is how clueless and arrogant I was. I thought, oh, I'm going to get a, an award or something. <laughs> he wants to honor me. But this is a Korean man. He had a more serious tone to him. He said, I, I think you need to come today. So I said, okay. I came to the school. I walked into his office. He was there. He was very sober. I looked at him. He looked at me, and he put my comprehensive exam on the desk, and I looked and it was marked up with red ink all over the place. And on the very top, the word, fail. I was numb. I was in shock. I had never failed in school before. And here was the exam that was to demonstrate that I had mastered this master's degree. And the way it's set up is there are five parts to the exam and the two parts that I thought I was strongest on, history and the translation of the Greek text, I had an epic fail. And I looked at my advisor and I said, so what does this mean? And he put his head down and he said, you can't graduate. Now, let me tell you why that was so shocking. My parents were going to be at the graduation. My entire church was going to be at the graduation. All the students from the parachurches that I was working with at the time were going to be at the graduation, and friends. We had booked a local Chinese restaurant. We were expecting probably close to 200 people coming to my graduation. And now I'd failed. And now my job as an adjunct faculty was also at stake. I can't even describe the feeling of humiliation that I had. I had an area where I thought I was strong in academically, but I just didn't pass. Can I tell you what I did? This is funny. I uh, was numb. I just went out of the office, didn't say a word to him. I, uh, back then, they had a blockbuster video 
and I stopped in and I rented The Godfather, really encouraging movie. I picked up Domino's Pizza, a pizza for myself, and my favorite Baskin-Robbins. I picked up a pint of ice cream, took it home. I uh, engaged in all those things together at the same time. My roommate came home. I was living in La Habra at the time. He was excited. He said, how did it go? And I looked at him and I said, I failed. He was stunned. He's like, he thought I was joking. He's like, come on. I said, no, I, I really failed. I didn't pass. I had to call my father and let him know that I wasn't going to graduate. I failed this exam. Probably wasn't going to get this job. And uh, he said, is there anything you can do? And I said, no. It's all on me. It's my fault. We hung up. Went to sleep that night, probably very heavy, tearful, of course, and feeling just absolutely humiliated. Have you ever been in that place? Something happened. You, you expected this, and then this happened. The other experience, which I'll sh share briefly, some of you know, I got fired from my first Korean church after 15 years. On Christmas Sunday, Merry Christmas. That was not fun. You ever been fired? That's not a good experience. And failing was definitely not a good experience. I remember praying that night and I said, Lord, help. That's all I said. God heard. The next morning, I got a phone call early in the morning. It was the dean of Talbot. He said, hello, Ben. And then I remember the first things I said to him. I said, I am so sorry, Dr. Dirks. That's all I said to him. And he said, yeah, I'm surprised that you failed. This is unusual for you. You're a good student. You have a good GPA. And he goes, what happened here? And I just said, I didn't study, and I thought that I was greater than I actually was. I was depending on my own abilities. And all of a sudden he said, Ben, I want to just tell you two things. One, you can take the exam again after graduation. So we'll let you walk in the graduation. You won't get the diploma until after you take it and pass. And I was like, what? Are you serious? He said, yeah. Okay, thank you. I was crying. And then right before he hung up, he said, and by the way, you still have a job with us at Talbot. Wow. Couldn't believe it. Graduated, celebrated, studied my tail off, went back to that exam, nailed it, got 100%. But I learned two incredibly valuable lessons, all linked to humility and humiliation. Number one was, I'm not all that. No one is apart from Christ. And I think that I had recognized or thought to myself that because I had done well in school, I had a good academic pedigree and, and, and even a reputation, that I thought I could do this with very little effort. How wrong I was. 
And looking back at that experience, I didn't even pray about the exam, which I should have. Ironically, it's a Bible exam. I didn't pray about it. I'm a pagan, let me tell you. The second lesson that came out of that was this, that failure can be the back door to success. Let me say that one more time. Failure can be the back door to success if you learn from it the first time and not make it again as a mistake the second time. I knew that I hadn't depended on God. I knew that I leaned on my own abilities and understanding. I knew that I went into that arrogant and not humble and I went in there independent, not dependent on God. And it required the school of hard knocks, humiliation for me to learn my lesson. And I think I've learned that lesson. And so whenever there's a tendency where I think of myself more than I should, God allows me in his gracious kindness to be humiliated with him there with me knowing that he's going to prop me up when I turn back to him. Maybe some of you have been humiliated recently. I think you have two options at that point. You could be bitter, which is what the world would do. A non-Christian would do this and say, Oh, God, why did you do this? You could be bitter, or you could be better. And say, God... I know you're trying to get my attention and I thank you that all paths lead back to you and that you would always have me back anytime, every time, for everything. And he did. And he will. Not only for me, but also for you. And it's interesting because James and John later down in the story, not in the Gospel of Mark, but later on, they would actually go on to greatness because they would be the representatives of Christ once he leaves and as that representation continued, guess what? That's why we're here today, because they continued the lineage of spiritual genealogies where people will come to saving faith. And so 2,000 years forward, we are here together as a part of their legacy of greatness that Christ saw in them way down the line that they themselves could not have obtained right then and there. So that leads us to our third and final point, the portrait of servanthood. This is a great verse. and When we get to verse 45, I'd encourage you to even memorize this. What Jesus often does is he'll clarify, he'll refine in order to define. And the, the contrast brings clarity. When he talks about greatness, he says it's not about lording it over like the Gentiles do. That's a phrase about unbelievers. He says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus takes the paradigm and he switches it. If you think you're going to be great, it's not that. It's got to be being the servant. That's the greatness. It's not a pinnacle thing. It's being on your knees. And he says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave. So he talks the greatness idea and he says it's going to be a servant. He takes the first idea and he says it's going to be a slave. And then he says the ultimate verse, which is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me read that again, because we're going to camp here in the finish of this past, uh, sermon now as we look at this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom 
for many. Obviously, the theme of the Gospel of Mark and its focus is servanthood, as embodied with the person of Jesus. And in verse 45, notice that there are two verbs that stand out, to serve and to give. And may I suggest to you, these are pillars that are undergirded with the foundation of humility, if not humiliation, that will stand up to predict and then produce greatness. And when we look at verse 45, this is interesting because Jesus uses his most favorite self-designation of himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. But he doesn't do that just incidentally or accidentally. It's intentional. If you know anything about that phrase, the Son of Man, it's actually an Old Testament allusion from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And in that Daniel passage, the Son of Man is depicted as a person of power, of glory, of sovereignty, and authority. That's why when it says in the phrase, even the Son of Man, it means that even a person of great greatness is now going to humble himself and take on true greatness by sacrificially serving and giving his life on the cross for our sins. This, my friends, is the glorious gospel. This is what embodies the gospel of Mark. This is the person of Jesus, the greatest person to ever live because he gave his life on our behalf. The holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas are my favorite times. Not just because of the great food and the glitter and the vacation, but because of what it kind of symbolizes. It's God's gift to us, Jesus. Many of you served over this week with our Operation Christmas Child, which I want to say we actually collected 4,500 boxes. Thank you for coming out and lifting and, and going through the rain. And we still have another day today and tomorrow. And, and these are opportunities that we have to be like Christ, to serve and to give, to demonstrate the kind of gospel greatness that Jesus is teaching us about and he is demonstrating for as an example to us. And as you think about the holiday seasons, one of the things that we'll have opportunity for is to be with people, with family. And I know for some of you, that's not something you're looking forward to necessarily. We were challenged last week by Pastor Corey about some of the wounds that we might have and I understand that this had some lively discussion over the week with the bridge groups. Again, the goal of that talk was not to solve this issue. It was to start you on a journey to say, maybe there is something I need to pay attention to. And in so doing, reconcile with God and with people if possible. Maybe the opportunity or challenge would be for you to go back to some of those people who you can't stand and serve them, and give to them, and demonstrate the kind of greatness that Jesus did to people who would eventually put him on the cross. Wow. Three application questions and a central truth, and we'll be done. Here we go. Number one, how do you define greatness for yourself? Does it align with Jesus' definition? My boy showed me this meme. I think it was a wide receiver of a football team. 
and the coach said to him, hey, you know, you're like the best receiver in this whole league right now. And his answer was, I know. <laughs> I was like, and that was a teaching moment for me to talk to my boys and say, look, the way he defined greatness was in himself. As painful as it was to watch the UCLA-USC football game yesterday, and I was praying hard for a miracle, I really have respected Clay Helton, the coach, for at the end in the interview. First thing he says, may all glory be given to God. Here's a man who's been on the hot seat for months, and he said, it's about the kids, and it's about God. He had the right focus. Is that your definition of greatness? Others? Or is it like James and John about yourself? Question number two. How might God be preparing you for greatness by leading you down the pathway of humiliation in order to teach and expose you to some areas of needed growth? I'm reminded of a story of a friend of mine from college. He never looked in the mirror. He just woke up, put on a hat, didn't care what he looked like, and just went to school. A Christian guy, he just said, well, I don't want to f- focus so much on my you know, externals. I want to just cherish the heart. I told him after his odorific situation became too strong that he probably needed to pay more attention to some of his hygiene and other things and at least look in the mirror. You know the Bible and the opportunities and the hardships we go through is the mirror that we get to look into once in a while. And maybe we don't like what we see, but see, that's where God comes in. He restores, he renews, he redeems, he makes new. Why don't you look into the mirror? Especially if there's areas of needed growth. Third and final question, in what ways can we mimic Christ by serving and giving to others? In our families, with our church, even within society. Let me press into this point again one more time. If we do it with people that we don't care for or or even disdain, that gives greater glory to God because it speaks of the supernatural power and fiber of the gospel where it will give us this ability to go above and beyond what our normal disposition says, no way, Jesus says, all the way. And that's where it's so different when we understand what the power of God really means for our lives. I pray that this season you will be Christ's chosen servant to whoever you need to serve and give to in a powerful way that it leaves a lasting and striking impression of Christ and the gospel more than just you. That will be my prayer. And so let's conclude with our central thought. Jesus teaches us that the pathway of humiliation is actually the road to true greatness that manifests itself in a lifestyle of serving and giving to others. One more time. Jesus teaches us that the pathway of humiliation is actually the road to true greatness that manifests itself in a lifestyle of serving and giving to others. When I look back at the time that I failed at tests, when I look back to the time that I was fired from the church, at the moment, it was not a happy time. I was angry, I was bitter, 
blaming everyone, including God, but not myself. And then when I became more sober and I looked back and I said, man, God really showed me something that I needed to see that would prepare me later on so that I wouldn't make those same mistakes. My prayer is that you would take that journey as well and that you would find what God wants to show you and that through that you would grow through it and lean on him forevermore. Amen? Let's pray together.